I'm not pulling out the driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for another drive to work at home edition. So as I explained uh, in a previous podcast, we are now hybrid in the office half the week and at home half the week. And so all my solo podcasts will be, I think, be in the car. But I like to do interviews and I can't do interviews in the car. It's hard to do interviews in the car. Um, but I'm going to continue to do interviews at my house. So today I have Matt Place to join us. Hey, Mark. Okay, so um, I've had people on to talk about sets we've done together. In fact, Matt and I have talked about sets we've done together. But today, we're going to talk about something a little larger. Talking about a concept that Matt and I were sort of the uh, co-parents of, I guess. Um, So we're going to talk about New World Order, which is something that uh, Matt and I sort of created and has become... uh, Anyway, we're going to talk all about what New World Order is, how we came up with it, and what it means to magic. So... So, Matt, why don't you begin? I've told the story, but you've never told the story. So, why don't you go back to the very beginning? What is your version of how New World Order began? So, first of all, you have a better memory than me, Mark. So, uh, you'll probably add a lot to this. But the big impetus, what what was happening at the time, this is, what, 2008, 2009 space, uh, working on Alara was the set we were currently focused on. And fresh in our minds was some of the, quote, unquote, mistakes that we had made during the time spiral block. Right. And just how complex and how too much text and just confusing uh, cards that weren't adding value, weren't adding fun and depth to the game. And so we said, hey, let's let's kind of do a reset here. Let's look at that and uh, figure out how do we what's a good philosophy to share with ourselves, to convince ourselves of and to share with the rest of the team going forward to make hopefully magic just as fun as it is without those pitfalls, without you know, people being like, hey, I have no idea what this card that has two mechanics I've never seen before and they're introduced in this set, thinking future sight, uh, and confusing people in a way that doesn't have upside, right? And and one of the big pieces to this is adding complexity often does add depth. But can you add depth without adding complexity? It's a harder job, but it's worth doing. And that was really the push that we were... Oh, okay, so wait, wait, before we get into wh- what it is, I want to explain <laughs> a little bit on, make sure the audience understands sort of the problem. The other interesting thing is... We were working on Alara, but at least my memory is the incident that spurred this was not Time Spiral, but was in fact Lorwyn Block. In fact, Morning Tide to be exact. Um, We were at the uh, employee pre-release for Morning Tide. Oh, I I have the story, yes. You remember? Okay. So for the audience real quick. So what Lorwyn did, Lorwyn was a tribal set in which there were eight tribes there was like goblins and elves and giants and tree folk. And we, all, we had eight different tribes. And then in Morning Tide, and this was all my doing, by the way. I'll take full responsibility for this. Uh, we played up five classes. So like soldier and wizard. So in the Morning Tide pre-release, half your cards cared about the first creature type on the card. And half of them cared about the second creature type on your card. Um, so to call it complex, it was, it was, it was complex. So go, go ahead. Yeah. Give the story from your, yeah, you're right. And you know, it was those years, right. Where we were, we were not fearing the complexity enough and you're right. Laura was the bigger one. And we also, in addition to having the, the tribe class combo being so confusing, right. It was, um, also just such a high percentage of your cards were in that space, right. When you open a booster, it was very easy to have what we called essentially lords and champions, right? Cards that would reference tribes, right? Like maybe this one helps every elf. And this one helps one specific elf or wants you to cast one specific elf. Uh, lords and, and champions were just 
saturating every booster pack. So you couldn't get away from it, right? It was just so loud and like you're saying, very complex. And we went to a we went to pre-releases for this, and I'm actually thinking of the Time Sprawl year as well. Yeah. But we have people who've been playing Magic for years and years and years, friend of ours, Rob, you know, and other people that are just, their minds are blown, right? They're they're trying to play, and they're like, I don't understand what's going on. What is this set? And it was this moment of like, okay, this is kind of our first test, and uh-oh, we've made a mistake, and it's starting to set in. We've, we've gone way too high. If somebody is into magic as these people uh, don't know what's going on. We kind of made a set, a way to say it is we made it for ourselves too much. Right? Well, so, so um, okay, you are correct that this problem was both stretched over Time Spiral and Lorwyn. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think Time Spiral did it more on the constructed end and Lorwyn did a little more in the limited end. Um, but so l- l- let me sort of, exp- I want to sort of define something that's important to understand is um we used to have, there's some metrics. We, at Wizards, we have metrics. Like, how do we know if a set's doing well? And our two biggest metrics were sales and play. Are people buying the set? Are people playing the set? And for years, sales and play were lockstep. Like, if sales were good, play was good. If sales were bad, play was bad. And it just felt like they were you know, reflections of one another, right? And then along comes Time Spiral Block, and play play was still good, but sales was tanking. And we're like, what's going on? Why right. Why are people playing the product but not buying the product? That didn't make any sense to us. Um, yeah. And, and, and a key piece here is when we're measuring play, we're measuring what Bill Rose likes to call the tip of the iceberg, right? This is not representative of everybody. These are people who go to Friday Night Magic, play in tournaments, et cetera, et cetera. So we're seeing that more hardcore Magic player enjoying the set because – it truly was, right? That is kind of a takeaway is we made time spiral for people like us. Yeah. So people like us go to Friday Night Magic, right? And they're enjoying it, but sales are tanking or, you know, going down. And it's yeah. the first time, like you said, those two graphs broke. They had never broken before where play is up actually and sales are down. And, and it made us rethink it a lot. And then, of course, Lorwyn did it in a different way. Right. So the so what we had the time we, we, we realized was we called them the invisibles, as we call the time. And what that meant was... Our data, and I'm also talking about back then, so I mean, our data is a little bit better than it was back then, Um, but our data at the time, we really only saw the players who talked to us, who went to sanctioned events. Like, we did have a lot of data, but it was not all of Magic players, it was a subsection of Magic players. And what we realized from, what, what Time Spiral taught us was, we were not seeing not only were we not seeing Magic players, but the majority, the vast majority right. of Magic players. Which which had been talked about, right? We knew that the Invisibles were super important. We knew that they played differently. Right? We call them sometimes kitchen top Magic players, right? But this really made it hit home, right? That we were, that they exist, they're in larger numbers than us, and we weren't serving them well. It's so funny. I remember uh, Bill Rose, kind of the boss of everybody in R&D at the time. I assume it's still true. Still, still uh, true. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, he got us cake. For time, to celebrate Time Spiral's release, right? Turn, pre-release events, uh, you know, tournaments are happening. People are loving it. We're hearing good stuff. And then we get the numbers on sales, and he's like, I'm never getting you guys cake again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, yeah, it's the first two times. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, and so one of the, the big things, I mean, the, the, the one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this is it's really interesting to look at problems and figure out how we solve the problems. Like, a, a lot of game design is, is problem-solving. Um... And so we were faced with this thing of, okay, what is going on here? And, but I mean, but you and I sort of like, so the story of New World Order is you and I um, go to this pre-release 
And I think we had been noodling in the head, but I, I, yeah. I don't know whether we went to lunch or like you and I were chatting somewhere where it was just the two of us. And we were sort of like bemoaning, like, we don't want to not like, there's an audience that really likes complication, that likes co the complication. We don't want to not have depth of play for the audience that really wants really deep, you know, play. But also we're like, well, but that's not what all our audience needs. So how can we, I mean, like, this is the ongoing magic problem. It's not one audience. It's not really one game. Uh, how do we provide for everybody when they're just, they need different things? Yeah, and I love to look at examples where we succeeded with that audience, right? And I, I forget exactly how our discussions went, but I think two good sets to point to that came before mm -hmm. uh, these years, before the Lorwyn and Times Squirrel years, is uh, Onslaught and, right, also a travel set like Lorwyn, mm -hmm. and uh, <clears throat> and uh, uh, Ravnica, right? And and looking at that and seeing that those, we believe those sets did well for this, uh, you know, kitchen top magic player. Well, yeah, so it's funny. You said Onslaught. I was going to say Legions. Yeah, which is even better. Right. So so Legions, for those, real quickly, Phil, I mean, Matt and I know this, but I need to fill in for the audience. Um, Legions was a small set where the, there was a gimmick, and the gimmick was every card in the set's a creature. 100% creatures. Now, the, the set overall was a little low on power level, and so the enfranchised player base didn't like it. Like, the, the, generally, the, you know, the vibe when you talk to the franchise players was it was a bad set. But it sold, like, hotcakes. Yes. And I, when I first started working, I was told that it was the best-selling small set of all time for Magic. It was, and for a while, it, I mean, it's since been yeah. passed. But it, for a while, for right. years, it was. And it, once again, it was kind of, it was the, before Time Spiral happened, it's the one other piece of evidence we hadn't quite yeah. pieced out. And, like, when you, right. when you put it together, it, it started, oh, oh, I see what's going on. And that was the opposite problem, right? Legions yeah, was... Literally the opposite. Yeah. Yes. Right. right. It was... The franchise players weren't that interested, but the kitchen table magic loved it. I get right. 15 and, creatures. That's great. Right. And those those rare slivers that were hot, right? Like yeah. people were trading for those at a very high level, even though they weren't in tournament decks. That was really interesting to us, right? Like, hey, it's not because people are trying to win a pro tour. They just really enjoy these cards, right? And that's part of why I think those uh, sets sold so well is, you know, mechanics like Slivers is so good, Tribal so good for the Kitchen Top player. But that doesn't explain why Lorwing did so badly, you know, yeah. and Time Spiral more so right. for that audience. But it's it's interesting to look back and go, okay, so what did we do right or what did people that came before me do right in these <laughs> sets that we're doing so wrong? And I think it's super interesting to look at Ravnica. When we're building, you know, making the mistake slash natural, uh, you know, game designer uh, path of, like, making it for ourselves – Ravnica is so interesting to have like, oh, what if I play three colors? What if I play two colors? What if I play four colors? So much of the depth was natural in having casting costs that require different mana base, different risk level, et cetera. Super interesting to the enfranchised player. And we didn't have to put so many mechanics at common, et cetera, to make it interesting to us. So we kind of naturally made it for the kitchen top player, I think. Well, and, uh, and there's yeah. another important lesson, I think, from, from Ravnica, which is... Um, sort of the loud strategy, like like Ravnica very loudly right. says play two color, and the idea of play more than two color, play three color, play four color was there, but it wasn't the loudest message, and it was a really important lesson of you have to be the loudest message has to be for your most casual player, right? And for the for the average player that is not in French player that just you know. Hey, it's the two color set. Play a two color guild. Like, oh great! Like, like, like one of the things we've learned about sort of the more 
casual audience, and the word casual is loaded, but in this case, I mean less enfranchised. Um, what we've learned about the casual audience is they like loud messages, right? They like sets that tell them what to do. Legions was fun because it was about creatures. It was hard to miss. Every every card in your in your pack was a creature. You got that. Um, uh, Ravnica, like you didn't miss the guilds. The guilds were right. as loud as possible. <laughs> yes. Um, which yeah, makes me laugh. They makes me laugh that they they had to end on the guild. Like uh, what is it? Ravnica City of Guilds because they did, Brady and I kept saying, "Don't worry, they'll, they'll get the guilds." And then yeah. Brady and I are on vacation, and they add. City of Guilds, because, like, no one's going to get it. And I'm like, anyway, so people did get right. the guilds. <laughs> people did get it. What do, you, what do you know? Surprise, surprise. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and so much of the skill, I think, and the things that just need, not, not only was I not good at back then, <laughs> but it didn't even occur to me, is how do you build depth that is discoverable and not, you know, puzzles you're trying to push in front of people's faces, right? Right. And it's kind of a mistake that I think Future Sight made, is we, we had so much interesting, like, oh, how does this play? What does it mean to have these two keywords uh, on one card, which was yeah. interesting, yeah, right. But it's not the way to find hidden depth, which is so good. If you can find an amazing set, which I think Ravnica is one of the best ever, yeah. And adding hidden depth, then you win doubly, right? Because you can go, okay, well now we're going to be able to focus it common and uh, thematically for right. that casual slash less enfranchised player, and still win with the people that are you know hardcore, going to play forty hours a week people, right? Another lesson, real quickly, is in some ways, Future Sight was kind of. Modern Horizons before Modern Horizons. Like, oh, okay, sure. I, I think what Modern Horizons has become is, hey, there's this enfranchised audience that loves crazy complex things, and it's a small portion of the audience, but it's a very diehard portion, and we can make a product for them. Just the premiere right. set is not we're supposed to do that. We can okay. make a product for them, and they can they can have fun. Like, Modern Horizons, you know, like you and I, like, I love Modern Horizons. Yes, there's 8,000 mechanics and whatever, but, like, right. I know them because I've been playing Magic yeah. forever, you know. Right, and, it, and it, it's fun to see them come together and, like, what does it mean to be in a set? Like, we had fun with it. It was for us, like we were saying. And then so as we – what's interesting is as we were saying, okay, what does it mean? What do we do, right, as we're kind of feeling the pain of yeah. uh, making these mistakes and we're working on Alara, like you said, it was more focused on Zendikar, right? We did do some of these new philosophies in Alara, but Zendikar is the first set where we said – Yep, this gets the stamp of New World Order applies to the set. Right, so so yeah. this is my memory, and jump in, because... Uh, sure. So the, the problem we were trying to solve, so this was the problem before us. Um, how do we make the game simple, simpler or, or you know less complex for the, the less enfranchised player, but allow the more enfranchised player to be um, engaged, right? And we had this... I, my memory was we were at lunch. I, I don't. I mean, you and I were talking. I remember being um, in, a, in one of the art rooms. We were like, oh, I mean, maybe it was in a meeting room. room. But anyways, I, yeah. I don't know where it was. I remember. <laughs> I remember this moment. I don't remember exactly yeah. where it was. Is um, you and I figured out that the secret was commons. Yes. Um, because what is the difference between a more casual player and a more franchise player? And that was the casual player tends to buy less overall packs than the franchise player. And what we realized was that the complexity of commons determines a lot about how complex something is. Because when you open up a booster pack, you know, of your 15 cards, 10 of them are common, right? right. And, like, one's a land. And, but, you know, the only four of the cards are uncommons and rares. Ten of them are commons. And right. that that's two-thirds the booster pack. 
And I, the big epiphany you and I had, I remember, like, we figured this out, we were just very excited about it, was that, like, it was all about commons. That if you right. could control the complexity of common, you really went a far, far way to controlling the complexity in a pack. And the idea was, for the more franchise advanced players, look, they're going to have the uncommons and the rares, they're going to just buy more packs. You know, like, we're, we're not... It's not that we're not letting them have the fun they want to have. It's just like, oh, we need to be careful about this one section of cards, which is the commons. Right. And and it's funny. It was an important epiphany, right? It was very important, I think. Yeah. Uh, it's also funny to say that, you know, we discovered it because I think if you look back at Alpha, it was already in, you know, like the Suvin Doppelganger was a rare for a reason. And my commons were much simpler back then, except for the outliers, of course. I mean, they're, 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 I mean, they're all confused. I, I will say early magic had some complicated commons, but. <laughs> yes. No, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's uh, I mean, it's, Alpha in general, Alpha in general was better yeah, about I, that. Alpha specifically, like yeah. even the next few years is not nearly as true. Right? Yeah. It's, it's fun to look at Ice Age comments, which is three years later, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, uh, they are hilarious, more complex than you would make a rare today, which is really funny. Yeah, there's, but, a, there's an Ice Age comment that has like 12 lines of text on it. And you're like, what? What, what is this? Yes. And, and also for no value. Which right, is right, right. Great. There's it, a whole bunch of text. It doesn't really do anything. But have fun. Right, it's like you can mess with circles of protection. That's, yes. No, that's the whole card. But, but they get a timer and they're going to blow up later. That's yeah. a comment. Yes, that's a comment. Yes. Wow. Uh, yeah, but we liked it actually. Right. So, okay. So what happened was, yeah. so the first big epiphany you and I had was that it, it was all about commons that like really setting complexity from a, from a pack level. Right. right. Uh, our whole issue is when you open up a single booster pack, how complicated is it? And right. we realized, okay, it's really about if we can control the complexity of common, we can control the overall complexity uh, of a pack, not of a set. Because if, if you're going to open all the cards, you, you get on commons and rares and later mythic rares. Mythic rares, I don't think were a thing yet because they shards of Lara premiered mythic rares. So yeah, Lara was first. Yep. Um. Anyway, so so you and I said, okay, how do we keep commons from being too complex? Right. And this was tough, right? Because first of all, this message to us internally is a tough message. Like, hey, we need to quote unquote dumb down the game. It's not anything the players want to hear or any of us in R&D want to hear. So what do we specifically mean, right? And so one of the poster child children for this was Samite Healer, right? Frequently a common in a core set, right? Tons of versions of that have been printed over and over. But what does it do inside of a game, right? And what, what could go wrong with Samite Healer for people to uh, just know it's a, it prevents one damage to anything. So it taps, it's a two cost one, one, prevent one damage to anything. And it adds tons of complexity, right? Because what are the different ways, right? If you just look at it, like how can combat play out when I attack with two or three creatures and they have two or three potential blockers? It's humongous, right? And tons of your attacks become terrible, right? It's not only does it create complexity in how combat can resolve, but also if you do it wrong, it's very punishing, right? We call these onboard tricks, right? Yeah. And that was that is a great example of incredibly complex should not be a common. And when we presented this to the team, it was like, are you kidding me? Samite's been a common forever. Magic's, been, Magic's the best game on the planet. How could this possibly be true that Samite is wrong? Yeah, one of the things that I remember, one of the, I, uh, one of the things we talked about was uh, this idea, of, like thinking of like brain power, like like how hard right. is your brain working? And imagine, points. right, imagine yeah. like a little RPM, like on a car, right? Like how much are right. you revving your brain? And the thing we were really trying to explain to people is, this card makes you really, really rev your brain. Like, yeah. commons shouldn't rev you that hard. And that Samite Healer is a good example in that it's not that it does one thing. It really changes the dynamic of how combat works right. in a way that just makes you do lots and lots of math, really. Yes. Um, 
And I, the way I remember we, we were, the way we, we demonstrated it is we made a board and we said, okay, I think we put like four creatures on each side and said, okay, let's take off, let's take away the, the um, semi-healer. Okay, what decisions are there? What are you doing? And we walked through what you're making. And then we added the, the semi-healer and said, okay, now what decisions are you making? And it was like five times as many decisions because all of a sudden anything you did had a variable that it didn't have before. Right. It's so many so that even though R&D at the time was full of pros, I'm sure it is still today, <laughs> it was actually a hard problem. It's not just I have to spend time, right? Like you're talking about what we call yeah. Robert Gutierrez coined the concentration points yeah. uh, concept. But also it was, it was incredibly hard. So you're like repeating and you still make mistakes. And, and to me, that was a big piece of it is like our commons making the game so hard that the punishing feeling is too high, right? What if I choose not to go through all the permutations of what combat could be. Right. Well, I just keep losing, right? First Strike does this to a degree as well, right? Where it's like, if I'm not reading cards and I'm not paying enough attention, what can go wrong? Samite Healer is, your 3-3 dies and mine doesn't. Are you done, right? Put your guy in the graveyard. you got no value for that attack. And it's just so embarrassing and painful. And it tells you, you better be reading all my cards because I could punish you if you don't, even at common. Right. There's another dynamic that uh, you hit upon that's interesting to talk about is... Um, one of the things we find when you, when there's too much to think about, a lot of players, what they do is they go, I'm not going to think about it. Like they, they, it's too much for me. And so what they do is they just make actions, right? And the problem is if they make actions that get horribly punished, it discourages aggression. It discourages them doing things, right? If the one time I said, ah, I don't know, whatever, I'll attack and I get destroyed. I learn, oh, I guess I, I guess if I don't know, I shouldn't attack, right? And then it just, it makes the game, it just causes all sorts of problems for the game because, right, people aren't ending the game, you know, and um, so a big part of the New World Order was, so we came up with this concept we called Red Flags. And what a red flag meant is, if this is true, you should think twice about whether it's supposed to be a common. Not that it couldn't be there, right. but what we were saying is, hey, you should never put this a common without acknowledging that you're putting it a common. Exactly. And that was so important too, right? Because we didn't want to take away the potential for fun and for, you know, synergies at common, et cetera, et cetera, right? And sometimes you need to pay the quote unquote price of complexity to make a set awesome, right? Because draft and, you know, people who aren't buying, you know, tons of magic cards still want to have the new sets, synergies and whatnot. So <clears throat> being aware of it and knowing that you're spending those points was a big piece of what, we're, what we were kind of proposing how we view commons in the future. And so identifying it, understanding it, and then being aware of it in our, you know, in our sets going forward was what we wanted to communicate to the team. Right. Yeah. And, and a big model of it was we called it the 80-20 thing, where what we're saying is 20% oh, right. of your commons get to do things, um, but 80% should, should be simple. Like, I mean, simple in the sense that they're not causing the revving we're talking about, right? Um, right. There's a lot of cards. I mean, the thing to remember is even a vanilla creature can make interesting situations happen. It's not as if a 3-3, it's boring. There's lots of, right. like, you know, what do I do? And they have this and that, you know, that. I remember I, I taught people how to play Portal. It's a uh, version of Magic we made long ago. And Portal has, like, creatures and sorceries and land. I think that was it. That, that was the only creature type. And you guys came up with the idea of sorceries that I could play during my opponent's turn. That was pretty smart. That was cool. Well, we did that on, on I think, on Counterspell. But <laughs> anyway, I was teaching people, and so when we weren't teaching people, we would just play ourselves. And it was really, like, how much fun Portal could be, and, like, it was the simplest version of it, but, like, right. combat is can be complex, even with just both, right. mostly vanilla creatures. Um, yeah. 
a two four is interesting, right? How does it double block, right? What, what are what are the risks if it, if they have a giant growth, et cetera, et cetera? And just you know, in, in the simple mechanics that don't cause onboard complexity, right? Uh, one of the cards I tried to draft in the new set says, whenever you play an artifact, put a plus one plus one counter on me, right? These are the types of things that could be a common, and we don't necessarily call them a red flag, right? Because it's you know it's growing and it's not you know. It's, it's a different size, but it's not like, oh, I got to think about this and how it's going to interact with these nine things. It's, hey, it's a creature that grows, right? Yes. And that can have tons of depth. And how do I build my deck? And when do I play what? Right. Uh, and that's a, it grow before I put it at risk, et cetera, et cetera. There's tons of depth there still. Right. That, that was, it was a big part of what we were talking about when we were trying to explain this to R&D is that it's, we're not trying to strip interesting things from happening. Right. What we were trying to take away is, what is creating these your, your rev your brain moments that right. make things much harder? And let and, and another big thing about the the twenty eighty thing is what we said is if your set's going to do something that's fine, but make it the that's what the set's doing. Like right. in Zendikar is a good example. Hey, caring about when you play a land is making you care about something you don't normally care about. But Zendikar said, well, that's the thing. We're going to make you care about one thing you don't normally care about, but that's the one thing you have to care about. That's a great example because yeah. sometimes I would hold a land in that format, right? Because right. who knows, I might draw a landfall character uh, creature later, and I might have nine of those in my deck. If there was one at uncommon in a random set, well, now I'm forgetting, and it's like adding complexity in a different way, right? Uh, and another piece that we, we uh, I think, was a good argument for this is – Everybody who plays magic kind of has their limit. We were kind of talking about this when you start to check out when you're revving too many of these concentration points up. Yeah. We're saying we make magic so complex in some of these sets that even the pros are reaching their limit, right? Like if I can pay attention to 17 things and somebody else can pay attention to 19 and somebody else wants to pay attention to six, well, we got 23 things going on. We're not making this for anybody, right? We got some of the best, Mike Turian was on the team, right? Like we got some of the best limited players of all time as a part of our play tests. If nobody's having fun with the 23, why are we going above, right? Why are we doing these complex, got to pay attention to so much stuff? So we had, we were arguing basically we had plenty of room to move down and still have a full complex game going on, interesting game going on, even if we divided it in half, we thought. And and another thing we were stressing was there things that make you think solely for just to make you think aren't inherently fun. You know what I'm saying? And that... Yeah. Like, one of the things we were talking about is, like, you know, imagine I have a card that says, you know, every time I attack, you and I go play a game of chess. And then the winner of, you know, if I win the game of chess, then I get a boost on my creature. And I'm like, you know, like, you can have things that have lots of complexity, but that doesn't right. make it necessarily a more fun thing, right. you know. And that a lot of what we were trying to say is there are things that are fun that add value. We just want to make sure that our complexity, like... Uh, here, here's an analogy. When you talk about fats, they always talk about there's good fats and bad fats, right? Like there's good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. And right. that we want our set, we want the fun to be the good cholesterol, right? We want, we okay. want, we, you know, we want the cards like saying the things that are adding complexity need to be fun. That you like, it's not that you can't add complexity, but make sure you're maximizing the fun on the cards that come in that are complex and not just brain revving for the sake of brain revving. You know what I'm saying? Not like, I have to make this very complicated puzzle I have to solve just to do it. You know, it's more like, oh, right. Oh, if I hold this land in my hand, then maybe later I can play it. You know, like, it's those fun moments where I think, oh, like, one of the things that's awesome about Magic is when you are playing a game, you go, you know what? Normally I do this, 
But in this environment, I'm not supposed to do that. That's a great moment, right? Uh, yes. Um, and, and a lot of this too is making me think of around the same time, I'm forgetting the exact timeline, but the, uh, you know, the huge heated debates we have with all the M10 rules changes. A lot of them were kind of targeted in the same space. What, what do we have that's just complexity, you know it if you know it type of rules, right? That don't add to the fun, right? That don't actually add to depth, like right, and, respecting, et cetera, right? Yeah, I mean, like, I, I know mana burns one of the things that, like, like it's here's something to care about that doesn't matter most of the time, but because it can matter, I feel obligated. Like, that. that's a real good area of problems where it's like there's a 1% to 2% chance this means something. So I, I feel like one of the reasons, for example, we now, uh, most of the time we put cards on the bottom of the library, we make it random. It's because it, like, it's not going to matter in almost every single game, but, like, because it could matter, you feel obligated to, like, maximize, and we're like, it's just not worth the brain energy, so we're not going to make you think. And where's the fun, right? I think there could have been some concept of, like, oh, you get too much mana in your pool if things are making multiple mana, but it doesn't even come up much at all. And you never hear anybody be like, oh, yeah, I love magic. It's got all these cool dragons, and it's got mana burn, and... I mean, as with anything, and one of the things that you always find out is whenever we remove something, there's somebody who had the yeah. deck that did it. I mean, there's always people that found a way to love whatever part of the game. Every part of the game is somebody who loves it. Um, but as game designers, you have to sort of, where is the best overall? Like, I'm yeah. not saying we can't make rares and do crazy things and people can care about them. I'm saying don't put them in common where you're making everybody have to care about them. Right, and that's a great point too, right? Is is when we were first pitching this to the rest of the team is a lot of the argument was like, look, we're not limiting what can happen in magic, right? The craziest, coolest rare that's ever existed could be in Zendikar. This isn't trying to argue against that at all. Right. And part of it, you know, part of the argument was actually like, Hey, maybe some of that complexity that we're moving from common moves up in rarity. So maybe for the enfranchised player, it's still the same amount overall, but uh, just not at common. Yeah, and so anyway, just to sort of basically what happened was the the larger idea of New World Order was we created a series of red flags, and I have articles that walk through all the red flags and everything. In half an hour, we're not going to hit all the topics here, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, basically the system was at common we have things that are red flags, and red flags would be like, do you have four more lines of text? Are you affecting other permanents on the board? There were there are a bunch of different things, and we said, hey, if you meet any of these requirements, look at it. It's not saying it can't be a common, but we have the 80-20 rule, which sort of said, look, 80% of your cards shouldn't be problematic, 20% can be. And then, even in the 20%, we're like, look, concentrate what you're making people think about. You know, figure out what's the main thing you care about. And it's fine that this makes you care about something new, but don't make every card be a different new thing. You know, at common especially, concentrate where it is, you know, and... Really, I, the funny thing is, R and D was was. It took a little while to get them on board, but once we really got them to understand it, you know, they were um, quite excited. I mean, they, they yeah. like they they did once they once they saw it. I, they right. everybody did get on board eventually, and and R and D was very much a fan of of New World Order. Yeah, and I remember us talking about that. Like, let's let's play this, you know, because we don't think that people are really going to notice a massive difference, right? Like when we make a set and draft it. And I forget exactly how we rolled that out, but I think it's right in line with what you're saying is we drafted sets that had this 80-20 rule at common, and they're still super fun. I mean, I think Zendikar is super fun. Limited yeah. format. You guys would go on. I left, but you guys would go on to make my favorite limited format of all time uh, uh, a year or two later with uh, flip cards and all these cool mechanics that were uh, very defined to the set. But, uh, but also it followed New World Order. Yeah, and that was... 
I mean, the reason I wanted to talk about it today is a lot of time I talk about like making individual sets, but another big part of our job is not just the sets themselves, but the larger structure, you know, how do we make sets? How do we think about sets? Like what, what are the guidelines? And I mean, this is just talking about one aspect, but there are many, many things that when we make a set, we have to think about. Uh, yeah. And New World Order was just a, an easy way to think about how complexity works in ASFAN. ASFAN is for ASFAN, how many cards are in the booster of a particular quality. Um, and, and that was like, that was a lot of us really saying, hey, let's be more conscious about how often something happens and where it happens and what it's asking the player to do. Yeah, and I find it so fun to to go through this, right? Because it didn't occur to us in the way that it did then in years earlier, right? Like it was right under our nose that we should have been paying attention to this. That's what's so fun about being a game designer. It's like, okay, where's there room for improvement that maybe hasn't occurred to us? Maybe nobody's talked about yet. But if we, you know, if we dive into it, we can find ways to improve a game, even like magic that's, you know, approaching 30 years now, which is just totally crazy. And one of the interesting things for me, I mean, as the person who's, who's been through this for most of it is... Yeah. We keep innovating. We keep coming up with new ideas and new things. And, like, it's amazing when somebody will come up with something. Like, I remember when um, Eric Lauer suggested the idea that couldn't we just draft the blocks backwards? So, like, the you, you draft the newest right. thing. And, like, we just had never thought of that. But as soon as yeah. he said it, we're like, how? why are we not doing it that way? Yeah, you know? it's so much better. Um, yeah. And it's... And it's it is crazy after 30 years how stuff like that comes up. Like, how, how in 30 years do we not come up with something, you know? Yeah. Especially the things that, in hindsight, seem so obvious. Yeah, but I mean, I, like one of the things I always joke about was I was on Mirage, and one of my big innovations. Oh, no, I'm sorry, what was it Mirage? No, no, it was on Tempest. One of my big innovations on Tempest was taking the common X spell and adding two red mana, so it was harder to splash. Nice. <laughs> like, like that. I never thought maybe the common isn't where the X spell's supposed to be. <laughs> yeah. Well, good news, Mark. It was still a bomb. And I'm glad you brought up the pro tour that I won. Thank you. Yes, but, uh, it, was, yeah, it, was it was still a bomb. bomb. It was Rolling still a bomb. Right? It was. It was. It was anyway. <laughs> the, but yeah, I um, I can see here. I, I can see my desk, so uh, I'm almost to work. Um, but I hopefully the, the thing I'm hoping the audience enjoyed today is like, um, it's really fun to get into the crunchy, you know, the crunchy stuff of a set. Uh, but I also wanted them to see like a lot of making cards is the the meta structure, not just an individual set. And this was you and I, like, this was a fun moment for you and I where we sort of innovated in something. And yeah. we came up with something that, like, right, looking back, like, how did we not get this before this? But <laughs> we didn't, so. Embarrassing. <laughs> at least you and I figured it out. So at least, at least we go, oh, okay, we figured it out. Maybe we should have figured it out years early. But we did figure it out eventually, so. I think so. <laughs> uh, but anyway, guys, I can see my desk. Uh, so we all know what that means. This uh, is the end of my drive to work. So instead of talking magic, it's time for me to be making magic. So thank you, Matt, for being with us today. Thank you. And it's always, uh, I mean, I have a blast talking with you all the time, but it, it's fun uh, having you on and just talking about magic things. So that's a lot of fun. So fun. So anyway, uh, thanks, Matt. And to everybody else, I will see you next time. Bye-bye.